computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today is no different, where we welcome Tom Panitz and Kira Rawlings from QUT. And we're talking today about their professionalization of esports. They're the first university in Australia to really take a focus on this as a and treat it like an actual sport. They've built an academy and they've started to really delve into what does it take to produce athletes and kind of professionalize or provide them with a pathway to become a professional athlete in esports. It is a fascinating conversation into what does it look like, this whole kind of emerging scene. Uh, for many of us, it's a bit of a, a stretch, perhaps, thinking of someone who sits there in front of a computer, clicking a few buttons, being an athlete. But if you look at the way they approach it, the professionalism, the teamwork, the, the resources they're putting behind it, and especially the crowds that they're drawing of like millions of people, there would be no question that it's certainly an emerging sport. So let's dive straight in. Tom, Kira, great to have you here. Thank you for joining us on the Intelligent Performance Podcast and where I'd love to start this conversation. What's your take on intelligent performance in the world of esports? Yeah, it's it's a big question. Um, in terms of like intelligent performance, I think with esports, it's just like any other sport. It's, you know, can we get to that highest level? Can we have athletes achieving at uh, high performance levels and then making that sustainable in a industry and um, Tom can chat more about this but in esports I mean especially in Australia it's so emerging so is that an ongoing sustainable performance rather than we just want to get to the top but how do we maintain and grow that as well yeah as Kira touched on the entire industry as a whole is an emerging industry there's only really been the last 10 to 15 years maximum where this industry has started to develop and we're already seeing viewer numbers at the scale of some of the largest NFL or all kinds of sport matches throughout Australia globally. Um, we have a couple of tournaments coming up globally that are going to expecting around the 50 million viewer mark, um, which is really exciting to see and how much it's growing, even though actually looking at the population wise, it's still a very small amount of people who know a lot about esports or even interested in it. The market is there to grow and really look for increased performance, increased um, increased viewership on these players, the people behind the scenes, commentators. It's all very much in the space that a lot of sport was at the start of TV and radio broadcasts right now. And the performance only can go up from there, really. Mm. So you, it's kinda, it kind of sounds like what it takes to become a really good esporter or esport athlete is kind of still up for definition in some regards. There's no real blueprint for it, would you say? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, the concept of an esport athlete is again, as Tom was saying, 10, 15 years old. Yeah. Um, there's still obviously a lot of conversations. We're seeing even more recently, like we've seen um the Olympics pick up esports. We have these conversations. I feel like every sport event I go to is esports a sport, and it's like yes. So how can we get past these conversations into what does a framework for an esports athlete look like? What does a day-to-day -day coaching structure look like? What does governance bodies look like? And it's such a different world to traditional sport and what we have to develop for that to, I guess, intelligently perform. Yeah. And so tell us, in, I, this is, I was going to ask you that question, like to someone who might say, he's, like, surely someone playing computer games is not actually an athlete. 
How would you kind of, how do you think about it? Obviously, you yourselves, you, as I understand, you you were or you are athletes in terms of that regard. And then you've kind of moved into more of the, the other side, almost like the development side and, and, and the coaching team. So how do you think about this as a sport? Like, does that kind of fit well with, you know, that definition of athlete? Do you think it's appropriate or, do, or, or, or not? Most definitely. Like, there's been... At the start of it, it was very unknown what an esport athlete looked like. But as the industry has grown and especially different games have grown, we've realized a lot that there's still a very physical toll that is on players when they're going to these high performance events. Some of these players are playing essentially for five to six hours straight. They don't get a chance to really turn off, which takes a lot of physical and mental endurance, which when you're sitting at home playing a game, you don't really think about. But the level of stress and the level of pride that they have in their sport is the same as anybody else who would be competing within a football league or anything like that. They still have that level of stress, level of dedication that they need. It's just whether or not everybody else can see that at the moment is the really big thing that comes into that question of is esport a real sport and are they real athletes? The level of work and dedication that a lot of these players are doing is top notch into the level of many of the highest leagues of any sport in the world. And so what does that look like, Tom, given that you're a coach for the the women's team, the QUT, what does that preparation, what does that training program look like from from that regard? Because that's anyone performing for six hours under pressure with 50 million people watching you. Yeah, that's a petrifying experience for anyone. (laughs) Yeah, so it all comes down to like it is it's it's all comes down to the same kind of training that you do in other sports we have three hour scrim blocks where we play three games against another opponent um for essentially three hours or a sub team for three hours and we practice in game and then after that we'll go and review those games the same way you'd review any other tapes and find the small mistakes and the small things we can work on we look at how we're communicating during game and developing that into a better process on a micro level by player by player or a macro level, how the team is communicating. Uh, we have a lot of esport organizations who are now starting to look at player psychology, dietitians, um, health and fitness and strength and conditioning training, uh, all to make sure that the players are at a level where they can last that six to eight hours with very minimal breaks of just prep like uh, I think going into the third, fourth place match that my team had this week, we had about three hours of just sitting down talking about game plans and how we were going to construct our team for League of Legends, which is essentially where we get to pick five characters out of 160. The enemy team picks five characters and we only get to ban 10. So there's like 20 champions that are shown, but there's 160 that we could choose from. And if you start doing the multiplication on which one we're going to pick first and everything like that, you go into the millions of options. So we can really go on for hours about like trying to plan all this out and think about it in a way that our team can get the best performance out of the game in as possible. The same way you would look at a soccer team and what position they're playing, whether they're playing two strikers or three, where they have the five defense, same with football, who's actually on your wing and what positions do people play within regular sports. It translates across to a lot of esports as well, especially these team-based ones where it is 5v5, 3v3. You still have those roles and you still have all of that teamwork and communication skills that are developed, which is one of my favorite things about it because me personally, I've had a couple of health issues in the past that mean I can't really play physical sports to the level of an elite athlete. But in this, I can still develop those teamwork skills, especially through high school and everything like that, and then perform at a level that 
would be in an elite athlete level uh, in most other sports. Wow, that's um, that's really extraordinary. So I had no idea people are doing this so seriously. So what's the what's the driver behind this? Is it because I'm aware there's professional teams in esports now. Uh, there's also massive prize money, which is arriving into this sector. So is it is it the capital which is making the biggest difference? Is it just the sheer popularity of these games from a really young age? You know, you've got teenagers and younger getting hooked on these things and then, you know, they're, they're spending, what, 10, 15 years of their life and then all of a sudden, you know, they get to university and they're clearly very, very good. Um, so what, what do you think is driving, actually, this kind of like this kind of turn to professionalism? Yeah, I mean, from what we've seen with the students that come through our program, it is that competitive drive, like they would approach any other sport, you know, if they've been playing football since they're five. I mean, obviously not playing sports since they're five, hopefully, but, <laughs> um, you know, you want to go the whole way. You want to be a professional. You want to have, that's a big part of your personality, that competitive mm. drive. Um, and we have students who have been playing you know, since early high school, late primary school, who want to climb the ladder, who want to make a name for themselves in this scene. And their aspiration is to go join a pro team. Um, the capital is interesting. Um, at this level, especially in Australia, I think um, the whole thing is like esports is a billion dollar industry, but it's very, that capital is very present at the very, very high end with those prize pools. So I think like a lot of other sports, um, you don't really see that capital until you are at the peak. Um, but we do see, I think it's just mainly players who love the game and who go, I can make a career out of this. Yeah. yeah wow. That drive. Yeah. That's the big thing. It's, it's how much players want to do it. Like a lot of, a lot of them come from situations where they're unable to pursue physical sports for one reason or another. It might be physical ability. Like there is parts of sport that are locked away. If you have certain disabilities or things like that, that esport as a more grounded and sit like you're mainly in one spot while playing it means that those limitations aren't necessarily there it's all about what you can the connection between your head and your hands and how you can dedicate yourself to that and still develop those skills without really looking at how your body may be impacting your ability to perform in other sports Mm. so I think there's always the challenge, right? Because sport traditionally is like kind of a very physical. There's usually a, you know, there's a period of usually getting out of breath and moving around or something like that. So, and that would usually be associated with some sort of quote unquote health benefit with the the movement side. How do you see that from people who go well, encouraging people to spend you know three, six, whatever hours doing a solitary game like this? Do you think there's a, a – how are you thinking that in terms of the health consideration of that? Because it's uh, perhaps less beneficial than running around for six hours or something like that? Yeah. Um, so what we've seen is fortunately being at a uni, we get to experience a lot of really exciting research into the space and that we mm. are seeing that we see elevated heart rate, increased cognition, oxygen, um, saturation, levels like that um, have the same impacts, you know, even though they are – sitting sedentary and they are playing a game um i would say yeah it's a lot of that dexterous you know um your coordination between um like hand and eye ability to react um very quickly if you talk about reaction speed and actions per minute um Mm. these elite players it's ridiculous it's extremely Mm. high um yeah i think there is that barrier though when we talk about esports in the world of traditional sport about that well it's just someone sitting at a computer so it's 
hard to break down, I guess, what the benefit is. And then we get into this whole world of video game addiction. And a lot of these um, things that, especially for parents, I imagine, can be quite stressful. And we talk yeah. about education setting. We obviously don't want students sitting here for eight hours and not doing assignments. Um, so it's, I guess, with like any sport, it's about just a healthy balance, you know? Um, and we have to recognize that it's a little more complex that you can essentially be on the pitch at any time. Um, mm. You don't have to have an allocated training session. We see players who will go home and continue to play games because the games incentivize climbing the ladder and boosting Bro. the stats. Um, but yeah, it's just creating strategies, I guess, around well-being, um, breaking up your time, but also recognizing that spending hours and hours in a game actually um, there's a peak, and then you start to decline after that. Mm. So, you know, it's like doing anything for hours on end. You will reach yeah. a peak, and then yeah there's results are diminishing. Yeah. And what's one thing that the industry as a whole, looking at performance, really has noticed over the last couple of years with all this research that has been coming out that these players need to be treated like regular athletes in the sense that they need to have strength and conditioning. They need to have all of this stuff to make sure that physically they are still able to maintain the level of athleticism that they need because there was a clear difference between when players were just playing for eight hours without doing strength and conditioning, breathing training, all that kind of stuff. And when they have now been on nutrition plans and strength and conditioning, their level of how long they can stay at that highest level and not see a different performance is really interesting now with all the data and research that's coming out. Wow. And so tell us about the, the academy side of things that you've, you're building or you've built at QUT. As it sounds like, so you've, you've built it around the game of League of Legends and how's that evolved in the periods so far and where is it? where are you taking it? What are you seeing? What have you learned so far in terms of what it looks like to to have athletes like this in, in your kind of cohort where it would be very different from the swimming, the swimming team, sure. for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the idea of the academy is to create a pathway to the pro leagues, um, to creating well-rounded esports athletes, um, especially in Australia, where esports is so emerging. We can see that um, similar programs exist in the states, um, where the esports industry is like has far progressed. You've got bigger orgs. You've also got more money. Um, but for us with this program, it's about, um, you know, identifying students who come in through our high school program or have an interest and um, are obviously starting playing esports at a high level very young and want to pursue this, but need some sort of guideway, um, need some sort of pathway and trajectory for that. Um, and we also know esports athletes skew very young and the career right. of esports athletes is very short. Okay. So we joke all the time, but the time you're 25 in esports, you're ancient. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is um, a tough reality to face if you're a young athlete. Um, yeah. But it also means, and what I find most rewarding about the academy is that we can prepare them for this career in esports, but they also have a degree at the end of it and a university experience without sacrificing one or the other. So I'm able to. And so when when you say they're starting early, or the, sorry, you say the skew, Kira, is what we said, mm. the skew. So what, what age are you picking them up or identifying talents? I know that's part of the, the process, right? Yeah. So the majority of the students we get in our first year, so 17, 18, 19, and right. are looking at joining teams probably that age, 20, 21. Okay. We'll hopefully have a career for a couple of years and then may either 
go on internationally, may move into, unless it's very common for esports athletes, if they have obviously a great on-camera personality or have an interest in tournament operation to then move behind the scenes or in, on camera. Yep. Um, so it's a, yeah, and I suppose it's a bit like similar traditional sports as well. We see athletes obviously transition throughout their career to multiple roles within the career they're in. But I would imagine a 17-year-old, because I remember going to uni, yeah. And my friends who, I think Pro Evolution Soccer at the time in the UK was really, really big. And I was completely garbage at it. I never had a PlayStation growing up and my parents wouldn't allow it. So when I got to that point, when I got to uni, the standard was really high anyway. And it became, a, it went to spe- yeah, at some parties it became the focus. And I would imagine those 17-year-olds, Kira or, or, Tom, or Tom, like that's the, um, they're all, they're already amazing by the time they get to to you is that is that right they've, they've done they've done the hard yards you're about to kind of how do you professionalize that into into something yeah it's definitely our aim so one of our players was already in the top 100 players in all of oceana new zealand and a couple and the surrounding islands right um by the time he got to us and it's all about it's now us working with him on okay you're really good individually but how do we get you to work more in that 5v5 sense, work on your habits and things like that. When you look at the esports industry as a whole, as we say, it's only been around for 15 years. So a lot of these players who are now in the later stages of their career started when esports was still a very new thing. They started in high school, they started developing through. So over the next 10 years, it'll be really interesting to see if that age starts to skew a little higher towards your mid-20s yeah. and things like that as players have been playing for 20 years of experience at that point um the re- main reason we see a lot of 18 19 year old 20 year olds now is just because they've they started really young they started playing games on a playstation or something like that when they were six and even though they not, may not be playing the game that they're playing now it's still starting to develop those hand-eye coordination and things like that reaction speed that is really really interesting to kind of view as the data it's one thing that we're starting to look into is all the data behind how these players are actually interacting and how we can actually move on just from the physical side to actually like in individually looking at the data and how we can improve their react speed improve all that kind of stuff to really find that peak level performance so that they can go on and find something in either the industry as a whole they could go on to look for stuff in asia or all kinds of places and are you finding if you were to kind of a b test it are you finding people in a professional program Ah, oh, have I like a higher likelihood? Is that you find it makes noticeable returns at this stage or is it still difficult it to navigate can. that? It definitely can. So a lot of games when you're playing them at home are very solo operated. So you log on alone and you jump into a game and get matched with four or five random people. Um, when you move into the higher parts of the scene where it's 5v5, very competitive, players have been playing together for a year or two as that five man so they have their own way of communicating they all understand how each other want to get into the game and play which programs like this really help support because we get you into that 5v5 state and you can start developing those team skills that the solo side of a lot of these games don't really help you develop the communication and the ways that you can communicate effectively especially um that can really differ in performance. Um, one of our players who started as a very solo oriented player now has moved into a very 
leadership role because he knows that his skills are there. He just needed to understand how to actually communicate properly and how to interact with the rest of his team to boost their performances to his level as well. Okay, cool. So it sounds, and from your experience, um, maybe it's a question for Kira, given that you've kind of gone into the working world, like how have you found the teamwork element? Has it has it kind of been transferable, that component? Like has it been, because that's, I think one criticism I'd say of universities, it's it's still very individualistic. It's all about your grade and versus everyone else and you can't cheat or, or copying someone else is cheating, whereas in teamwork sense, it's all about collaboration. So have you found it kind of prepared you well, Kira, from that regard? Yeah, well, I mean, I can see it in the players we have, um, whether we're talking about their transition to the pro esports scene or just their transition to higher levels of university, the working world, um, yeah. taking them from solo play alone, putting them in an environment that's like a, a safe, um, controlled environment of saying, okay, here are some teammates. They are the same age as you. They have the same interest. Work on your communication skills. Work on bettering um, you know, your skills, but also being mindful of the team around you. Um, having that for two or three years as a young person, I find, mm. is incredibly helpful. Mm. And we can see that in players who, from where they start the program, from where they end, um, I like to think that hopefully it eases their transition into a professional team rather than being picked up by an organization. You know, if you're number 10 on the leaderboard and they go, great, we'll sign you to our team, but you've never really played in a five stack before and you don't really have that experience of actually working in a team. I cannot imagine how daunting that experience is. But if we can kind of ease that transition or even if it's just, you know, getting that degree, you've had that team sport experience in your chosen sport, you can transfer that to the workplace. You can transfer that to a lot of situations in life. Cool. And so it sounds like the actual team, sorry, or the esports side of this, it's all, is it mainly about teams rather than individuals versus individuals, do you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for League of Legends, a game we play, teamwork is crucial. Okay, right. Um, if you have... You know, someone, so everyone has an assigned role. Um, if you have someone lacking in a role and your team's just letting them drop and, you know, have a bad game, it's detrimental for the entire team. You can yep. lose a game by just one person's role, like any other sport, team sport, really. Mm. So, and yeah, for the players, we do focus a lot on, um, while they may have mechanically solo great skills, while they may be a great player individually, they will struggle if they cannot communicate those skills or be, you know, helpful to their teammates in game because it's so crucial to have these five people working together. Mm. And another thing we've noticed just on less of the player side, but even just the production and things like that, we we do stream all of our events and we help facilitate um, training of broadcasting and things like that. That's why we have the beautiful setup behind us. Yeah. Um, We've noticed that those skills are definitely transferable. We have a lot of our uh, staff or casuals come in as individual gamers and then they start playing, well, working as a team here, working through production, having their own individual roles. And as they start doing that and start developing those teamwork skills, whether they've come in already with them or developing them now, the level of what we can do here is only increasing because everyone has learned how to rely on each other, ask for help. Things, as you were saying, of very collaborative nature that sometimes universities don't quite teach you because they're all very, you have your grade and you need to not you know necessarily copy off other people here. It's all about collaboration. I'm lacking here. You're really good at it. Why don't you do this and I'll do something that you need to do in the meantime. 
um, it's definitely a transferable skill and something that across the behind the scenes we've worked on with our teams we've worked on and it's the whole industry as a whole is a very collaborative experience whether it's the developers of the game who make the rules and do all of their things to actually put it out to people whether it's the teams and organizations trying to get the best out of their players whether it's the broadcast side the industry as a whole is a very collaborative and entertaining place to be for sure so you've done a great segue there uh tom so thank you about the production side because i think yeah for those who can't see uh the videos that we're on but they these guys are sat it looks like they're kind of coming live in from the mcg uh in seattle they got their headsets on it's like they just watched the you know the grand it's grand final weekend which when we're recording this anyway so it's kind of a um a good setup but tell us what the production side must be pretty serious in this space because as i think you mentioned that um just before we jumped on tom Given it's a digital environment or it's an online environment, without without production, um, it's going to be pretty average experience because there's no kind of you know on the on the pitch as it were, or no physical element, and especially the no one's no one's actually moving right from a uh, they're all stationary in their seat. So yeah, tell us about that that side of things. How have you approached that from a making that a great experience? And what are you seeing in the industry more broadly? All kind of there seems to be crowds in some clips that I've seen of actually people bringing crowds into studios and stuff like that. But yeah, what's your take on it? Yeah, so it all again depends on what level you're looking at. At those larger levels, they have the funding to have their own dedicated arenas. They bring the players in and they play from the stage. They'll have crowds standing there. And from a viewer point of view, as you said, most people are very stationary and you're just kind of looking at the back of a monitor. You can't really see what's happening. So very quickly, um, esports as a whole moved to a digital and very high scale production value because they needed big TVs for people to be able to see the action in what's happening. Um, when it goes to the lower levels of that, it could just be one person on their computer with a webcam who is commentating the game while controlling the in-game camera, which for lower-level stuff is how a lot of people got started. It's how some of our casters got started. But then we get to the level that we're at now where you have a proper DSLR camera or something like that hooked up to a computer using different types of converters and stuff that are used in the regular broadcast industry to a level that um, anybody can use. So a lot of the students here have learnt stuff around the film and TV industry that they could go onto a set looking at performance for 2032, for instance, which is coming up. A lot of this kind of grassroots stuff can help feed skills and develop a level of performance that means that we have a wider range of skills and, well, people who will be really good going into the workforce who have uh, the skills we need for larger scale events. Um, if you look at some of the large ones, we have the League of Legends World Championship coming up each year that's hosted in a different host country. So this year it's in South Korea and they have three, uh, I think 400,000 seat stadiums that they're going to play in. Those will be sold out during the events. And the level of that production is they have this TVs the size of uh, probably a single story house just up in the same way that you would see any sort of wow. uh, high level basketball game or things like that. It's the same kind of stadiums that they use. They uh, In America last year, they used, um, I think it was the, uh, the Bulls, Chicago Bulls stadium for the grand finals or the semifinals at one point for the wow. championship. So yeah. And they, they level yeah. Wow. Okay. It's such massive business and it's so, um, 
What's the average age of the, of the viewer that you're getting? Is it, is it typically, I imagine that it would be a, a very younger skew. Would that be, that'd be fair? Definitely currently. Like there's, there's the majority of gamers in general currently sit from that kind of 16 to 30 age group. But even now, as things are, as the industry has been expanding, some of these companies are talking about how they're seeing that go up as we see well, go it grow in both directions as some of those people on the older side of the spectrum start to have their kids and they start actually, you know, sitting down and watching the games on the TV with their kids the same way that they would watch the NRL or things like that. And being able to grow the industry both as people get over older, they still come to games, they still want to go see it live. And then also bringing the newer generation and starting it earlier, the industry is only going to expand so much over the next 15 years. It'll double its lifespan and probably triple or quadruple the amount of viewers that we're seeing in all across the world. And what's so, I mean, exciting about esports um, is this fan engagement perspective. So we're able to broadcast, you know, a video game. And as um, Tom was talking about to these stadium events by having a screen in the middle of the stadium to engage a crowd of thousands. But we can also do that online through free platforms like Twitch, which have mm. a um, direct chat function. And it's not something you really see in other sport broadcasting, especially when you talk about rights and everything. Um, but to be able to take the biggest international games, put them on a free platform and then have a chat window next to that for fans to like interact in real time with the events on screen is yeah a very exciting space to be in from a fan engagement perspective. Yeah, with with that, we have fans from the University of Auckland talking to fans from UQ in that chat window and, you know, hyping up their own teams on broadcast and, you know, the same kind of banter you would get at a regular sport match. And that's, that's all something that you can still have that experience, even just being at home or not being able to access that stadium, which sometimes, especially at the more amateur levels, they don't get broadcast unless you're really in that United States kind of college football area. Um, it's it's really hard to usually see this amateur or development level where we can start seeing promising new players start to come in until they hit that peak. Because unlike most sports, we ha- we're all online and we're always streaming on Twitch or people can access it through the game client or all kinds of things. So you really get that level of engagement that can only grow from where we are now. And in terms of your approach, have you? Is there like someone who's like a leading light that you're like, yeah, we're, we're replicating their model. I'm guessing the Americans would be mad into this, but also yeah, South Koreans, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, like, wh- who's your kind of guiding light? Who's like the? Oh, I wish if if we could, if we had unlimited budget, we would be like X. Like, who's the kind of the, the, the standouts in this space at this point? Yeah, for me personally, I look to a lot of the collegiate programs in America. Um, especially the learnings they've taken from their, you know, F1 football, F1 sports and volleyball and things like that and transferred that to um, esports and taken that model they've perfected with the collegiate skills um, and a model that's incredibly popular. So having um, general audiences engaging with like a collegiate level sport is unheard of in Australia. Yeah. Um, But they've managed to take that audience and those learnings into esports and which I think is like a really great sustainable model. And who's the standout in that space, Kira, for you? Um, a lot of the California universities, UCLA, um, I want to say UCI, CUCI, mm, yeah, exactly. um, have. And there's, it's it's hard to pick a one with the states um, because there are these like conferences. There's a, there's a lot of high achieving colleges over there who are really? doing very exciting things in the esports space and are taking it extremely seriously. Where we're seeing the prevalence of um, 
scholarships and programs like ours towards athletes. And I mean, we're very fortunate to offer an esports scholarship, but we are, as far as I know, the only one in Australia who do it. Well, it's a far more commonplace over in the States. And why has QUT gone that way? A lot of it kind of just came down to the dedication of the players. So as Kira mentioned a lot earlier, it was this club started as a student-born club of people who love League of Legends. It was originally three separate clubs for a couple of different games. They came together and made a collective as a guild club. They then started working with the sport department and the QT administration and ended up moving in to join the sport department as a proper section of it. And then from there, it was just going to show the level of dedication that we had to these players who were developing. We had players who were looking for pro careers, so we wanted to support that. And really, it's a growing industry that only the performance of the industry as a whole, whether it be on the spectator side, whether it be on the production side, whether it be on the player side, is increasing. And we're only managing to find new ways now on how we can really find that peak and make sure whether it's on a technical side with the actual equipment we're using, the computers themselves, like games have requirements for what they have inside their computer, whether or not it's a really high-end graphics card to make sure you get the most frames possible because, you know, our eyes see in a certain amount of frames per second. So you have better reaction if the screen is actually updating the same time that you you can kind of process it. The faster it proce- mm. you can process it, the better you can play. Um, or it's even the equipment that they use. There's new technology coming out from a uh, mechanical level. You see, for instance, like um, basketball at the moment, there's that whole new invention of like the solid ball that you don't need to pump up that's been 3D printed. Um, right. We have similar kind of technical advances in keyboards and stuff, how quickly your keyboard can actually react to when you press a key and how fast that input gets to the computer can really affect how your performance goes. And the industry as a whole is only trying to find the peak now which is really exciting to look at for sure so it's like a real niching sorry Kiria, we're going to say oh i was gonna say going back to your original question i mean from the university perspective we if we treat esports like a sport we can only help to develop the scene yeah and we have an audience um of students who are pursuing these careers so it would just if we can support them while they're time to study and going back to that crucial age bracket they're in being able to help them achieve a degree while also pursuing their sporting career like any other athlete we encounter in our lead athlete programs is, um yeah, it's a really exciting opportunity we have. Yeah, I think it's um it's really interesting. To, it's kind of hard to believe, just, just kind of suspend disbelief to the traditionals out there. And I'm kind of, I'm feeling pretty old as we kind of bring, come to an end here, just in terms of like, ah, oh, yeah, it's a very traditional view of, of, of gaming, um, usually one where it's like associated with, ill health and you know solitary confinement largely but what you're talking about is quite the antithesis to that really it's all about collaboration it's all about teamwork and it's actually a great it's a great format to actually learn and to your point tom is it's accessible more accessible than a lot of sport right like um i never thought you know i was never going to be a rower you know with them i'm like less than six foot and you know like you pretty much if you're not not six four then you're, you're screwed basically like it's kind of like I think there's some really lovely accessibility, yeah, accessibility things around esports, right? To a whole different um, type of person. So, well, team, look, just want to say a massive thank you for joining us. I uh, one quick question to kind of maybe finish on is what's next? Where? What do you see in this space? What do you think is coming up? Where do you think this whole esports space is going to go? Yeah. So 
we've already started to see where it's heading towards. Um, this afternoon's actually the finals for the Asia Games, which is the basically the Olympics for only Asia, um, or the Commonwealth Games would be another equivalent. Um, and this year is the first year that they've had a true esports presence. So for some of these athletes who are competing out of South Korea and stuff, that's a level of pride that they can actually get a gold medal for their country in an event that usually has been skewed towards more physical sports where they wouldn't be able to pursue that. And that comes with all kinds of great things we've seen. Uh, Kira's just come back from a Olympic event with esports where even though they aren't necessarily playing the larger game titles they're starting to see some of those things like just dance which love a physical element uh swift which is a virtual cycling uh experience starting to come into these larger events and it's only going to continue going forward looking at really breaking down that barrier and that stereotype of gaming is an unhealthy thing and actually showing the level of performance that these athletes do have and breaking down that barrier to say that esport is a real sport the same way that chess is considered a sport, the same way that darts is considered a sport. They do take a lot of skill and dedication to develop to those high, high levels. It just might not be that most people right now at least understand the how close the level of competition and athleticism is between esport and most other sports. Awesome. And that sounds like, what are you, Kira? What's your take on it? I mean, essentially, and as Tom said, it's the trajectory of it. It's only going to continue to grow. We've seen um, this year, as Tom mentioned, in Singapore, the Olympic Esports Week, and now the um, International Olympic Committee are forming groups dedicated to esports. They have an esports advisor. So this is just something, it's just going to continue gaining momentum. Um, mm. Yeah, and then it's just slowly, Do we? how do we build framework and governance within the esports space to match what we expect out of a traditional sport with governing bodies, with athlete programs and pathways? And what does that look like in the future, maybe for 2032? Interesting stuff. Great way to finish with a curious uh, question mark over uh, Brisbane 2032 Olympic Games, whether they have esports in there. What's your take, guys? Do you reckon, would you put money on it or not? It's a really tough one. Yeah. With 2032 is not that far away. And there's a long mm. way for esports to go to be considered, I guess, yeah, in that framework and governance as an Olympic sport. Um, and there's also a big question of esports is not just one game. It's such a multitude of things. Um, yeah. And what is the, um, as we see with the Olympic esports, what is going to be classified as an esport? Um, I think we are going to continue to see um, like, Exogaming, virtual sport, esports, all these sort of digital platforms based around sport um, continue to grow. Whether that becomes a Olympic event, we'll see. It's um, yeah. yeah. Within it's within the industry, there's been a couple of discussions, not even about 2032, but actually about Paris and whether there's going to be anything um, in Paris. And they're starting to have those kind of conversations on whether some of these sport tech. Um, games and experiences are going to start becoming larger parts of even before we get here um the olympic program and things like that so it's really interesting i think the the big halt right now is unlike most other sports where you have kind of a single governing body for each country and then a global governing body for say fifa for instance who can talk to the olympic committee when it comes to these games they're primarily run at a high level by the developer of the game themselves so it's whether or not those developers which are businesses over governing bodies 
um, can find a way to work through the governance and talk to the Olympic committees about what do you guys need from us to really show the height of our sport and at the height of our performance to the rest of the world. And that's only going to become easier as all of these barriers start to be broken down. Super, super cool. Tom, Kira, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you.